Welcome to Crohn's and Colitis Perspectives on ReachMD, produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Our understanding of pain in IBD is rapidly evolving. According to recent research, up to 70% of IBD patients present with pain at the onset of disease or during disease flares, but many patients go on to report ongoing pain even when their disease is in remission. This has created an explosion of interest in research into brain and gut connections in IBD, and it's these connections that will become the focus of today's discussion. Welcome to Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Perspectives on ReachMD, coming to you from the third annual Crohn's and Colitis Congress in Austin, Texas. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and here with me is Dr. Emrin Meyer, a gastroenterologist and professor of medicine at UCLA's School of Medicine. Dr. Meyer is also a neuroscientist and serves as executive director of the UCLA Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience, and he's one of the leading investigators in the world on brain and gut microbiome interactions in GI disorders, including IBD. It's a topic that is literally exploding on the map and getting much attention at this year's conference. So, Dr. Meyer, welcome to the program. Nice to be on the show. Great to have you with us. So to start off, can you just give us an overview of where we stand in understanding how this gut and brain axis is affected or altered in IBD? It's been obvious to us in our center for at least 20 years that there must be a communication between the brain and the gut um, in IBD, not just in IBS. Um, But the field... um, other than the patients, was not really ready for accepting this. This was considered a immunological disease of of of, of the gut, and um, so in uh, principle, there's very there's no organ in the body that has such close connections with the brain um, as as the gut. And there's a long reason, many many reasons for that, evolutionary, um, but, but also in terms of you know functional regulation. The gut has its own nervous system, the so-called enteric nervous system, which deals with simple things like uh, peristalsis and uh, fluid secretion. But this little brain, the gut, does not really link uh, the gut to other higher functions such as pain, emotion, uh, motivation. And that's really, I I think, what has made this so interesting, that Mm. if you think about pain... Most people think about pain as of an injury on a nerve ending that, that hurts, it's like typical acute pain. In, um, in IBD, we have really dealing mainly with chronic pain, a very different entity. And every part of the brain-gut, um, I would say now also brain-gut microbiome axis, is involved in the generation and maintenance of that pain. So um, something that may start in the, be- in, in the periphery um, due to inflammation, a- acute inflammation, makes its way by sensitization of pathways to the spinal cord, uh, from the spinal cord up to the brainstem, from the brainstem to higher centers. And then the brain doesn't just sit there, but it responds um, trying to modulate this pain and typically in chronic pain to downregulate it. Um, if this... This is a pretty sophisticated process, and in humans it's difficult to dissect all these components. Um, but we believe, from, and from our from our research so far, that this brain-gut axis is altered. The brain is altered in chronic inflammation in IBD. Just presented a study here <coughs> yesterday, and, and um, th- th- that this alteration of affects both the structure and the function of the pain. Of, of the brain, 
um, and that the brain, I've shown it earlier, has these powerful ways of modulating the perception of pain, and we think that's also altered in some patients with IVD who have more pain than you would expect from their inflammation. That's great. Why don't we dig a little bit further into the uh, triggering of pain? Because it seems that pain in IBD is triggered from a variety of sources, um, including but not limited to inflammation itself. You have psychosocial factors, stress and anxiety. Can you just speak to the diversity of pain triggers and its relevance to the gut and brain axis as we know it now? So the, these, these diverse mechanisms... Um, yeah, let's let's start with inflammation. With for most people, it's the most obvious and, and intuitive. And hundreds of animal models, we you know cause inflammation in the in the colon, small intestine. You study the nerve endings. You study the the dorsal root ganglia. Um, you study the spinal cord, all the way up. And you will find a time course of sensitization in the periphery that lasts only a really relatively short time till where your peripheral nerves are sensitized, that sets off the spinal cord. The spinal cord memory of pain stays longer. Um, and then it goes to the brain, and then the brain decides what it's going to do with it. Is it's going to amplify it? Because <coughs> certainly one advantage of the brain amplifying it is that you know it right away and can do something about it. Um, or if it's chronic and it's been there for a while, the brain tries to suppress it. And it has multiple mechanisms, so-called descending pain modulatory mechanisms. Personally, I think that is probably one of the most important parts in, um, in those patients who have, who have had chronic pain and, then, and the pain persists even when the inflammation is, is treated. Um, so this has got to be a central mechanism that, that drives that. And so I think we've made lots of progress in that. Most recently, there's also the um, the gut microbes um, have come into play. So gut microbes produce a lot of metabolites, um, and some of these metabolites can interact with different levels of this pain system. So tryptophan metabolites, serotonin, canurinine. Um, I mean, canurinine, for example, one of the tryptophan metabolites can has been shown to modulate many brain circuits uh, mm. involved in, in emotional brain regulation. So it's gotten more complicated. So now we, <coughs> and now we don't just have the, um, the inflammatory molecules, the cytokines and, and, and so forth, but we have these, these chemicals that um, probably add, add or work in uh, parallel with the traditional cytokines and uh, inflammation mediators. Well, for those just tuning in, you're listening to Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Perspectives on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Emron Meyer about pain and the gut-to-brain axis in IBD. So, Dr. Meyer, you've given us a great foundation now on the underpinnings uh, between this brain and gut connection for pain signaling. But if we translate that to clinical practice, how can these understandings be better utilized to care for IBD patients who are experiencing pain? How do we help counsel them? How do we actually make treatment recommendations that will help them counter this uh, system that has kind of gone off the rails dealing with a chronic pain situation? So I would say there's two types of patients. So patients who are in a flare, 
it's kind of appropriate that they have the pain. I mean, that's part of the flare. It's the main component. And we have IBD treatments that deal with the flare. So in, in the ideal patients, you treat the flare with whatever medication approach, and the pain will go away. It becomes a problem in those patients where, where this does not happen. So you, you treat the inflammation. <coughs> can take biopsies, do, do a colonoscopy. Mucosa seems to be healed, but the pain persists. Um, and that's a significant portion of patients. I forgot the exact number. It's somewhere between 20 and 40% of, of Crohn's patients. And, and, then, and then sort of a major problem starts. So some um, physicians would then say, well, this wasn't, this wasn't the right biological therapy. We have, to, we have to change it. We have to increase the dose. We have to, and so that's a big mistake because this is basically saying it doesn't respond because it's, we, we're not hitting it hard enough, mm -hmm. and I, I don't think that's really the case. I, I think physicians have to think about it Okay, so then it's a different mechanism, and, and what can we do in in that case? Make an assessment: are there are there factors that can be addressed clinically <coughs> that that may you know that may uh, uh, that may play a role in this? And so clearly, psychosocial factors um, play a role in this. So um, anxiety, symptom-related anxiety, is a big one. So you don't have to be anxious in general, but you always worry about your symptoms. Um, this catastrophizing is another one. There's also now recent studies who have found that as you can divide up um, patients with IBD, done this on a large number, um, into stress hyper-responsive um, group and the normal responsive group. The, the stress hyper-responsive group has a different perception of stress. It goes again to the salience assessment. And those patients, if you followed them for three months, they had more flares. Mm. They were the same at baseline, but if they had this phenotype, they had a greater number of these flares. So these, this phenotype or this subgroup can easily be identified in, in the clinic. I mean, there, this could either be a short questionnaire or it could be... We're interested in studying the biology behind it, but for the clinician you can make that assessment. You don't even need a psychologist to, to do that. So if you have a patient like this, you have to add you know, an adjuvant therapy to your, to your regular um, um, IBD-targeted um, treatment. And there's a range of things. I, I personally prefer there's a pharmacological one. So there's the same medications we try in in IBS, so the tri low-dose tricyclic antidepressants, not for depression, but for... If the patient has clear-cut anxiety or depression, clearly that needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. um, and and then there's the non-pharmacological, which kind of a wide range today, which could be mindfulness-based stress reduction. So learning of how not to over-respond to, to stress. And there's cognitive behavioral therapy. And the interesting thing with that is that used to be a fairly limited um, fairly limited access because it's expensive, it's long-term. Most cities don't have a CBT or GI CBT uh, specialized person. And that's rapidly changing. So there's now, there's now several companies, most recently announced Mahana, um, that developed these web-based CBT programs.
And the physician would just write a prescription and the patient, you know, gets, gets online. There are already studies from England that this is highly effective, as effective as face-to-face therapy. And so I think we have a range of things um, available. It will require a significant amount of education on, on the physician side mm-hmm. that these things are available. They're not just psychological treatments. They're biological treatments aimed at a biological organ, the, uh, right. the brain. Um, but I think this could make a huge difference. And it's, it's not that challenging for the physician, for the gastroenterologist. You know, if you think about this, this online CBT, I mean, this is, takes two minutes to, to explain and, and to write a prescription. It's mm-hmm. not... But getting through the, the, the stigma that patients will sometimes feel in being potentially prescribed a psychotropic or being prescribed CBT, uh, thinking, oh, so you're telling me I'm just an anxious person and, and my pain uh, needs to be mitigated because I'm just anxious. I mean, this is pain I'm feeling. And so it sounds like there is an educational component counseling-wise to be able to say this is treating the biological uh, you know, neurochemical root uh, that is keeping your your chronic pain going even when you're in remission. This is a potential way to treat that without us jumping the gun on your treatment, which is working otherwise. You know, your flares are taken down. Is that part of the counseling that has to go into this? That's part of the counseling, and you know, this. I mean, there's obviously a long way to go from a traditional. I, I still remember even in our division, you know, when I gave a talk on on this topic, then some senior. IBD expert would get up and say, I, I just want our fellows n- not to get confused here. You know, IBD is a real disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not psychological. And so this was, you know, five years ago. It, it has changed. It has changed. Mm-hmm. A lot of the younger p- people are, are really aware of this. And particularly patients. This, to me, is surprising. You know, patients are r- really aware of it. And we're not saying that somebody has fistulating disease and, you know, that resections and that you can cure anything or, or that this is a psychological problem. But if you deal with the the patient war, recent onset, frequent flares, this group, this 20 to 40% group that has persistent pain with reduction of inflammation, they are very open to that. I mean, I've... Um, but education on both sides, physician and patients, I think is is key. And is there a role for referring to pain specialists um, or other specialists, for instance, if comorbidities are involved, um, or does this ultimately all fall on the IBD specialist uh, to be able to incorporate these tools and to really um, get them um, utilized more often in practice? Um, I, I would say it's certainly based on my experience pain experts are not really experts on chronic visceral pain, just like psychiatrists are not experts. So this is clearly an area that you have to... So our division has responded to this by creating a a wellness program (coughs) with a wellness coordinator, a nurse practitioner who who does... So if you're the physician, you refer that patient to that wellness coordinator. She will explain all the things that, that I just tried to explain to you. And she's very popular. Uh, patients love that explanation. And then she d- divides it on triages it to, um, we also now have a cognitive behavioral um, therapist in the division, but also outside in, in, in close vicinity. 
And I, I think that's the ideal model. If, a, if an institution can afford that, I would say, and there's a few universities now in the country that have started to do this. There's, there's Michigan, there's Mount Sinai, UCLA. Um, and I think it will become the model. It's more cost-effective, I think, than, uh, you know, than, than, than the current one. We are, unfortunately, out of time. But I very much want to thank my guest, Dr. Emron Meyer, for joining us today to talk about the brain and gut axis and the connections to our deepening understandings of pain in IBD. Dr. Meyer, it's fantastic having you on the program. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. <laughs> for ReachMD, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Thank you all for joining us. This program was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. If you missed any part of this discussion or to find others in this series, visit ReachMD.com foundation, where you can be part of the knowledge.